All American school children know that 1492 was the year Columbus landed in America. But that year is also the date that the last Muslim stronghold in Iberia fell. It was the end of Muslim presence in Western Europe. Now these two events were related, of course. The Spanish monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella, once having consolidated all of Spain, sponsored Columbus's mission to the West, on the heels of which would follow the conquest of the New World. In the same year, they proclaimed an edict forcing all Jews to convert to Christianity or leave Spain. The similar order for Muslims would come nine years later. And the infamous Spanish Inquisition began 14 years before this. Now, all these events were part of a similar crusading effort that would continue for centuries. But in the Muslim world, 1492 is not celebrated with children's poems about Columbus sailing the ocean blue, but remembered as a very low point in Muslim-Christian relations. And that is our story today. the fall of Granada is just one point in a continuous campaign that starts in the north of Spain and continues for 700 years until the last Muslim forces are driven off the peninsula. And when we look at it from a macro perspective, uh, that's pretty accurate. But as we've seen, the process down in the micro view was neither smooth nor predetermined. In fact, just a decade before Granada fell, Ferdinand and Isabella had no intention of taking it. Well, the fall may have been inevitable eventually, but from the ground, in a short-term perspective, the ups and downs and the backs and forth of this struggle made the outcome seem anything less than secure. After all, Christians had established a foothold and established three kingdoms in Palestine. Those didn't last. So the reverses in El Andalus were not necessarily permanent, even though they seem that way to us now. So this is the last in a series of episodes talking about what is known as the Reconquista, the end of the Muslim rule in Spain and of basically seven centuries of a, a golden age of culture. If you remember our last episode, the once great Muslim state in El Andalus had been reduced to only the southern part of the peninsula, but it nevertheless managed to flourish as the Emirate of Granada, for centuries in fact. It was sort of a mini golden age that gave us some of the greatest Muslim landmarks in Western Europe and are still visited today. And it was a base for some of the biggest names in Muslim culture of any time. People like Ibn Battuta and Ibn Khaldun. Now this was all possible due to the highly successful Nasserid dynasty. 
which not only managed to keep internal control and unity, but to balance power with the Christians to the north and also the Marinids in Morocco to the south. It was a marvelous balancing act, and they not only managed to survive, but they managed to really flourish. But things don't last forever, and by the late 1400s, this was all coming to an end. Now, it would probably be no surprise to you at this point to hear that the deciding factors were internal, not external. Uh, if you've listened to any of our episodes in this series or any of this podcast, you've heard that pattern repeated so many times that we don't even need to tell you. Uh, the smooth successions of power that we saw in the last episode that enabled the Nasserid dynasty of Granada to not only keep power, but to keep getting stronger and building itself up internally and not devolving into those highly destructive and counterproductive internal power struggles. Well, that didn't last forever. And by the 1470s, we now have a contender for the throne rebelling against the emir and seeking outside help from the Christians to do it. Now, this obviously sounds like nothing new, but at this point, that's a very dangerous game, considering how much the Muslims really have left in El Andalus. Well, of course, to the north were probably the two most famous Spanish monarchs of all, Ferdinand and Isabella, whose marriage in 1469 essentially consolidated what we think of as Spain. And as you've heard me say for weeks now, that Spain was an idea that was developed in the Reconquista. It was not something that was returned to. Uh, But by the time we get the Union of Castile and Aragon, really now we have what is going to become modern-day Spain. Well, in this pair, Isabella, who was by far the more powerful of the two, was Queen of Castile for 25 years, even though she died at the age of 53. So she spent most of her life on the throne and being very powerful. Uh, She ruled with Ferdinand, who was the King of Aragon, for the last 15 of those. Well, their names end up on a lot of things that most school kids know about Spain, or at least medieval Spain. Um, Even if you've never studied it, you know about them sending Columbus to the New World. Uh, You may know about them driving out the Muslims. And, of course, uh, the Spanish Inquisition. Well, that's all them, plus a lot more stuff. And they most definitely had a crusading zeal. And they would take that crusading zeal to the New World after they had expelled the Muslims and the Jews from Spain, which is... Of course, a whole other subject uh, we could discuss. But they are definitely sitting to the north uh, with quite a reputation uh, when things are in turmoil in Granada. But that's not the only threat they face as well. Um, There are the, uh, excuse me, the Marinids and Morocco who are, of course, Um, also looking to take over or reestablish influence on the peninsula as well. And it takes a strong leader to be able to balance these things. And that strong leader needs 
to know, and they need everyone to know, that they've got a firm grip on things at home. That's the only way they can make those sort of negotiations. Now, when we look at it from the perspective of time, we say, why would they ever devolve into fighting amongst themselves when you've essentially got these predators you know, right at your doorstep waiting to devour you? Well, that sounds like a logical question to ask, um, but if you know any history of any place in the world, uh, you already know that that's something that happens very commonly. And let's face it, um, none of us living in this era right now should be uh, condemning other folks for having a very short-term perspective. Okay, anyway, and despite that, despite that we have this sort of steamroller, this crusading uh, power to the north, their victory was not assured, nor was it even clear by the 1480s that they wanted to rid Spain of Granada. Now, yes, they were um, crusaders, and they were, were looking for the re religious uh, legitimacy, but you know, having Granada there as something you could use as an ally against other Christian enemies or your Moroccan enemies just across the straits, uh, to some extent that could be useful. And we've seen this uh, in all the history we've looked at, at of El Andalus, that Christians and Muslims working together uh, for their own interests was something that was quite common. So all the records that we have uh, tell us that at least around the year 1480, uh, it seems like they were ready to accept the status of Granada uh, as, as sitting there as a um, state that they were going to deal with. Now, that's going to change. When an internal dispute, a fight for the throne of Granada comes about, well, Ferdinand and Isabella see this as a window of opportunity. Um, so if you're a predator and you see your prey fighting amongst each other, well, this is just a great deal for you. And that window comes in the person of Abu Abdallah, who would be, on and off for times, the Emir Muhammad XII of Granada. And sometimes he wouldn't be. Uh, the situation was a bit complicated, and if we try to describe it again, it gets very convoluted. Uh, but the point here is not to try and, and follow all the little twists and turns of who was working against whom. Uh, the key point here is just to see that these internal struggles were going on at a time when survival was very, very precarious. Well, who was this fellow? Abu Abdullah's father was the Sultan Abu al-Hassan, who caused a significant amount of waves when he refused to pay tribute to Castile that Granada had always been paying in order to keep its independence, which is one of the reasons uh, that uh, the Castilians were willing to keep them around. Uh, they've been paying for, for a long time, paying this tribute, which, I mean, essentially is protection money. Uh, and it's a lot. As we said before, it was the largest source of income going into Castile, and it was by far the largest source of outgo coming out of Granada. So much gold that they had to get special, you know, uh, gold trade from Africa. Okay, well, Abu al-Hassan decides that he's not going to pay this anymore. 
Okay, that's going to cause some waves, but just in case they didn't get the message, in 1481 he raids the city of Al-Zahra, which uh, despite its uh, Arabic name, belonged to the Christians at that point. Not only does he conquer the city, he has the Christian population enslaved. Now these are not things you generally want to do if you're trying to keep the peace, um, and generally not things you want to do if your neighbor is much larger than you. So listening to all that, you might think that Abu al-Hassan was a pretty anti-Christian guy, but that's not necessarily true. Uh, after this, he abandons his wife, who was also a member of the extended royal family of Granada, okay, and thus had a lot of connections. Um, and he abandons her to marry a Christian woman, which didn't sit well with the powerful of Granada for a lot of reasons. So they conspire to have Abu Abdullah usurp his father and become the Emir Muhammad the Twelfth. So, again, a little bit confusing here. Abu al-Hassan is the Sultan at that time. He is the Emir. He has a number of children and uh, Abu Abdullah is one of those and as we've seen the, the powerful and the influential at court often find someone who has a connection to the throne, who has a bloodline to the throne and they use them to get rid of someone they don't like. Well they're seeing Ab um, Abu al-Hassan, he's creating a lot of problems internally and externally, they want to get rid of him and so they have his son Abu Abdullah replace him. Well, if you thought Abu Abdullah, a.k.a. Muhammad Twelfth, was going to make peace and keep things stable, uh, that was not the case. He launches a series of attacks on the Christians as well. But these don't go so well. Um, and by not going so well, we mean in the sense that he not only loses, but he ends up getting himself captured. And he is now the prisoner of Ferdinand and Isabella, and I mean, he's supposedly the emir of Granada. Now, you may take that to indicate um, that he is pretty anti-Christian as well, but you would be wrong here. And you may take that to indicate that Ferdinand and Isabella really hate him and they're going to punish him for what he did. But again, you would be wrong on all these counts. And the point is, you'd be wrong in seeing this as just a straight religious war, Muslim against Christian, and even two people who are as zealous in this and as intolerant as Ferdinand and Isabella are. I mean, and they're sort of in the Hall of Fame for that. Hey, even them, they're willing to make deals and do politics with whomever they need to. Okay, so because his son, the usurper, is gone, Abu al-Hassan becomes emir again. And Abu Abdullah is sitting in jail in, in, um, under the custody of uh, Isabella at the time. Well, that might seem like the end of the Abu Abdullah story. But what he does is he writes to the Marinid Sultan of Morocco... Uh, which, you know, they were out of this picture for a while, but he's going to bring them in, the third party. He writes to them and he says that Ferdinand and Isabella are offering him a really great deal to stay with them. They're going to give him luxurious uh, accommodations and put him in charge of a lot of stuff. 
uh, and, and they were, as we see from uh, events that follow. So, I mean, just because he made war against them and, and they conquered him, yeah, they got no problem with this guy. He's, he's living it up there. But he says he prefers to go to Morocco. Well, you would wonder why they want him, um, but they do. Uh, they see him as leverage they can use against, uh, against Granada. And so, here again, if, if you're thinking this as a, an idea of all the Muslims united against all the Christians, I mean, that's definitely not the case. Um, because if he went there, they would have had him locked up and, and killed if that were the case. Well, so he does. He goes to Morocco, and not only do they take him in, but he becomes a royal guest. He gets great treatment. Uh, he's living the life of luxury and getting a lot of support. Well, you might conclude from that that uh, Abu Abdullah becomes very pro-Moroccan. But again, this is just another case where things don't play out um, the way you think. Uh, so he wants to get back on the throne. That's his main thing. He wants to get back to Granada and, and take power again. And despite going to Morocco where he thought that would be the best um, sort of way to get in, that they would use their influence to get him back in there. Uh, it turns out that they, they don't want to do that. And so he now sees Ferdinand and Isabella, again, the people who captured him and whom he left. Now he seems like they're his best shot of getting on the throne in Granada. And they definitely see him as a way to create chaos in Granada and maybe bring the whole thing down, which, of course, he does. Okay. So Ferdinand and Isabella sponsor Abu Abdullah on his triumphant return trip, uh, for which he promises to make Granada a vassal state of Castile and Aragon. Of course, he's going to pay all the tribute that they owe, and they are going to appoint him as a duke in their kingdom. So officially, Granada is going to cease to exist as an independent state. It's going to become part of you know what, what is essentially the kingdom of Spain, and he is going to be a Spanish duke, uh, essentially going to make a puppet out of Granada, and he's willing to do that so that he can be in charge. And the Moroccans are willing to send him back so they can do it. Um, well, that might have been in and of itself a way of essentially neutralizing Granada, but old Ferdinand and Isabella, they see, hey, we can go even further with this guy. Uh, maybe he can go in there and mess things up so bad that we can just go in and conquer the place outright. Now, we're not speculating that. Ferdinand actually said that in 1483. Let's send him back there and have him cause all the trouble he can. I mean, that's not the way he put it, but that was the, that's essentially what he said. Uh, anyway, so Abu Abdullah is known in Spanish as Boabdil, which supposedly is a rendering of his name, Abu Abdullah, in Spanish, but I mean, you would never really guess that. But anyway, uh, Muslims who get Spanish or Latin names means that they're generally well-loved in Europe. Now, that's often true of great scholars and scientists like Ibn Sina or Ibn Rushd, but if it's a guy ruling a state at war uh, with the Christians, and, you know, they end up giving him a, a supposedly Spanish uh, pet name. 
you can pretty much guess that the affectionate familiarity that the founders of the Spanish Inquisition have for him uh, means he didn't succeed too well at defending Granada. to be extremely useful for the Castilians. Uh, once he returns, it basically starts a civil war for control of Granada, which will continue right up into the end. Um, I mean, basically, he's only got nine years left, but that's still a fairly long time. And he ensures that the Muslims will never be able to unite their forces against the Christians. Because uh, throughout this, despite all they've lost, um, particularly since the point where Granada is established as an emirate, they pretty much managed to hold on to their ground, inflict enough defeats on the Christians that the Christians are basically willing to tolerate them being there. Um, but once he shows up, he really ensures that all the swords are being used to fight uh, internally and not externally, and so he's really going to open the gate uh, for them to come in and take them over. Well, that might be enough, but he's going to go beyond that, and he actually supports the Castilian attack. When they attack Granada, he takes his forces and fights on their side. And he's believing, as he was promised, that he's going to be the duke of all this land once they take it over. Now, nowadays it seems pretty naive to think that, and we can look at Boabadil as basically a chump, but in, in some fairness to the guy, this is kind of in keeping with how things had been for centuries. Uh, perhaps he doesn't realize how close we're getting to the end, but hey, you know they've been making these kind of deals forever. So when we take a, a macro perspective, uh, it, it seems pretty clear. It, it seems like Ferdinand and Isabella are going to destroy the last Muslim foothold in Spain, and anybody who's making a deal with them is essentially uh, selling out his own people. But he doesn't quite think that way. Okay. So, as it turns out, the key to Granada's survival is the city of Malaga, uh, which is now a resort town. But these folks were not making their money off timeshares back then. The reason this is significant, it's the last major port that Granada still has open. They've lost Gibraltar, they've lost the other ports that they've once had, and we've said how much they depend on the sea trade. I mean, if they're not trading by sea, they're essentially trading with Ferdinand and Isabella, so you've pretty much got a stranglehold on them if their sea trade uh, goes away. Well any Muslim allies that might have come to bail them out at the last minute would have to come across the sea and they would have to come to Malaga at this at this point. So Ferdinand and Isabella realize, hey, we have to take this place. We're going to take Malaga and then we can essentially just starve out, strangle uh, Granada. And so they begin a long siege. It's actually Isabella is the one who leads this long siege of Malaga. Now, this shows you how much the nature of warfare has changed. 
it's now no longer mounted knights leading the battles as it had been, you know, uh, horse on horse, sword against sword. Uh, basically, the Muslims don't have the troops to wage any more uh, major battles. Estimates today put their total forces at about 4,000. And again, remember, thanks to old uh, Abu Abdullah, a.k.a. Abu Abdil, most of those are fighting each other and doing the nice work of killing each other so that the, the, um, the quote, big enemy doesn't have to. Uh, estimates of Castilian forces are somewhere around 20,000. Now, these, by the way, are not the crazy inflated numbers you're going to see in the epic poems, in the histories, um, which just, you know, cite armies much larger than anyone could have supported back in those days. And that was quite common. I mean, by, by the way, like the Bible has battles with hundreds of thousands of soldiers, which was just plain impossible back then. I mean, the Bible even says that King David personally killed tens of thousands by hand. So those numbers are pretty wild. But we think, looking primarily at their supply records, it was about 4,000 Muslims against 20,000 uh, Christians. So they definitely don't want to go out and fight a land battle with swords. I mean, it doesn't matter how good you are. Uh, so what they do have, though, are castles. And they have some really tough mountain terrain. This is very rugged terrain. So their best bet is to hold out against the invaders, uh, which they might have been able to do if they could keep their supply lines open, which is why Malaga is so important. Because maintaining a siege is quite expensive, and uh, medieval armies are just not made for spending long periods of time in action, uh, unlike armies of today. This is basically a fight and then go home to your crops kind of thing. We don't have large standing armies. Um, these are your citizen soldiers who are only going to go out for a short time. And so if you're making a siege of a castle or a city, yes, it's tough on the folks inside, but it's also tough on the folks outside. However, in this case, several things are in the Christians' favor. Uh, number one, no matter what the propaganda might say, the Marinid Empire in Morocco, they don't care who they're supplying grain with and other necessities. Now, the, the Sultan writes all kinds of wonderful stuff about jihad and so forth, but bottom line, they don't care. Uh, they'll, they'll supply whoever is paying. And as it turns out, Castile can pay a lot more than Granada can. So they do continue to trade with Granada as long as they can, as long as the port's open. But uh, they are also critical in keeping the Christian army supplied and in the field, particularly with wheat. Uh, that part of North Africa had always been the breadbasket. It was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. Uh, and so without that food, the Spanish armies just would not have been able to keep the siege up. They'd have to go break it off and then, boom, you're back to square one. But um, the, the Marinids in Morocco, they don't care. Hey, these dudes are paying? Fine. Okay. So uh, they're one uh, factor assisting the Christians. But, of course, we've got Boabdil, who, I mean, is their best, their best agent they've got. At this point, he is actively fighting on the Christian side, meaning he's got his troops out there fighting with them in the battle against the other Granada folks. That's a big help. But lastly, 
the development of siege weapons has come a long way in a short time. The Castilians have a large supply of cannon and other siege weapons that you need for undermining castles. Uh, because, yeah, you can starve them out, but that takes a long time. Uh, so you, you essentially got to be able to blast down the walls of castles or um, tunnel under them and, you know, undermine them. That's, that's where that word comes from. Uh, and this is the main fu function of artillery in this day. Uh, what we think of, uh, of artillery, it, it's just not able to, to function that way. These cannon are very, they're huge, they're very cumbersome, they're very hard to set up, um, and it, partially it's because they, they don't really have the technology to make cannons as, as solid as they need to be. If something's going to have explosives going off inside them, it needs to be really, really strong. They don't have that capability yet, so you have to make huge huge cannon. Um, and so these things are good as siege weapons. They're good for blasting through stone walls and, and being fired at castles day after day after day. The kind of uh, artillery that we think of in Napoleon's era on, on the battlefield, blasting the way through infantry troops and cavalry, that's a long way. Okay. By the way, the Muslims have nothing of the kind. The only cannon they do have are the ones they captured from the Castilians. Okay, so this is going to make a big difference. Well, in 1487, Malaga falls in Granada, loses its port, and now it's essentially cut off. Now, you can recognize that date. We're five years from the end. So Granada's going to manage to hold out for another five years, but their, their fate is essentially uh, sealed. Well, they do try to write to all the major Muslim powers for aid, but at this point, you know, no one's going to come bail them out. Uh, the only one that might have helped, of course, was Morocco, and you can see they're not only not interested in coming to their aid, um, I mean, they're, they're actively aiding the enemy. The two main powers... The Mamluks in Egypt and the Ottomans in Turkey are fighting each other. Uh, and it, in 1517 is when the Ottomans finally de defeat the Mamluks. So that's more news for the, the Christian side. Despite all these things in their favor, though, it's still going to take five more years. And the, the problem is Castile still can't keep a large army in the field for extended periods of time. You know, something like uh, World War II with the army in the field for five years. I mean, this is just so far off of what is capable in the medieval time. So there are still more fortresses to capture, and the cleanup work is going to take a long time. But, I mean, the, the end is never in doubt. Okay, this is sort of like if you're playing chess and you just had your queen captured by a pawn... Uh, there may be a lot more moves, but the the end is not in doubt. Then, however, even this smooth process has a hitch. Wabadol discovers, much to our shock, that Isabella isn't actually letting him run any of these territories that he's supposed to. So in the last act of this story, old Abu Abdullah, the genius, realizes, hey, I don't think they're actually going to make me a duke. I think they're just using me for a chump and they're going to discard me. Well, 
this may be a shock to him. It's probably not a shock to you. Uh, as soon as you heard what he was up to, I'm sure this is what you expected. But finally, Boabadil uh, switches sides and goes to war against Castile. At this point, that's hardly significant enough to make the news. Uh, but the thing about it is he, he's going to switch sides. He will be the ruler of Granada for the, I mean, the very, very last um, moments of its survival. And so he gets to have all the dramatic moments. There are, there are all these paintings made of Boabadil leaving the castle for the last time and you know him being the one essentially to hand over the keys from Muslim Spain which you know, of course had been established in the year 711 so he gets to be sort of the star kind of overlooked the fact that he was actively fighting on the enemy side the whole time anyway okay Granada manages to hold out through 1491 just barely it surrenders on January 2nd, 1492. Now, oddly enough, the surrender agreement, coming from two fairly notoriously intolerant characters like Ferdinand and Isabella, uh, is surprisingly lenient on the Muslims and the Jews, even, at this point. Um, they, they are kind of guaranteed the ability to practice their religion, um, which is fairly uh, deceptive because there are further decrees that are going to come very shortly that's going to um, revoke all of that. Uh, So two months later, in March, comes the infamous Alhambra decree. And even though it's named after the Alhambra Palace, it, it actually concerns Jews and not Christians. And is, of course, one of the landmarks of anti Semitism. In, in Europe. But for the moment, the terms were not so bad, uh, for, for the Muslims at least. For Christians who had fought on the Muslim side, and as we said earlier, there were a lot of them. There were a lot of enemies of Ferdinand and Isabella. Uh, there was no mercy for them. Most of them would be burned to death. So when Boabdil leaves the Alhambra Palace for the last time, the story goes that he started crying at which point his mother said, Why do you cry like a woman for what you couldn't defend like a man? Which is kind of harsh, right? She should say to him, Hey, you know, you did a much better job when you were fighting for the other side before you decided to switch, really, is is a little bit more honest. Uh, Anyway, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella are going to set Boabadil up with another kingdom, but he prefers to go to exile in Morocco. Uh, apparently he didn't trust them very much. And he lives as an honored guest for the next 40 years. So this idea of an intense religious war really has to be tempered. Um, they don't seem to blame this guy very much for playing both sides. But in any case, 781 years of Muslim states in Iberia comes to an end. Now, individual Muslims will be allowed to stay for a few years, but not many. Uh, The Jews all have to be gone by the end of the year. Well, it's easy to see how 1492 becomes immortalized in Muslim history. 
I mean, this is the only territory that they've ever conquered and lost completely. Now, in, in parts of India, the history there is contentious. But when we map the spread of Islam from the small city of Mecca outward, there's only one place where it actually recedes. Now, we have a lot of empires falling. Individual Muslim states are being replaced by other Muslim states. But even in the cases where we have the, the infamous Mongols, uh, for example, who destroy what's left of the Abbasid Caliphate, even they convert to Islam within two to three generations at the longest. So this is a very different thing, to see what was once one of the gems of the Muslim world, and it becomes really the, the center of Christian crusading. Well, the harsh decrees that follow are going to really change the picture. Uh, whether the initial tolerance and the initial uh, sort of lenient uh, peace treaty which is uh, signed would have lasted or not, uh, we don't know. But the situation is going to change uh, very, very uh, quickly. And it's going to affect the way uh, Muslims look at this. Uh, of course, as I mentioned, there's the uh, infamous Alhambra decree which gives Jews only four months to convert or leave Spain. Now, this was not the first order like it, so a, a lot of Jews had already converted to Christianity. Uh, it's estimated that there, at one time there were 300,000 Jews in Spain, uh, some 200,000 converted to Catholicism, and the other 100,000 emigrated. Many of those went to Italy, but the biggest destinations by far were Morocco and the Ottoman Empire, Ottoman Turkey where they were guaranteed safety and freedom. We've talked about that, the, the Vimy status that they had. Uh, and, you know, it's really, really a sad thing when we look at the state of affairs in the Middle East now, and I mean, from the middle of the 20th century on, where we tend to think of Jews and Muslims as enemies uh, fighting one another. I mean, the, the, the fact is, the one place that Jews could go to be safe was to the Muslim world. I mean, they certainly weren't safe for most of history in Europe. So it's really sad the way things changed. Now, of course, someone may be quick to point out, you know, this was a long time ago. You're talking about the 1400s here. We can't be too harsh. And that's a good point. But the Alhambra Decree was not repealed in Spain until 1968. Okay, we're talking, I mean, this, this is after the Beatles were touring America. Okay, and that, that Alhambra Decree was still in place. So there was plenty of time for someone to go back and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, this is, this is kind of unfair what we're doing here. Okay. Well, uh, the Muslims were left alone, more or less, uh, for about three years. But this was not going to last. And a big reason was that Isabella's new religious advisor uh, was uh, Cardinal Cisneros. And he was extremely zealous. Um, I, I would say he has a notorious reputation, but actually if you look... Um, certainly from a Muslim perspective, he, he definitely does. Um, 
actually, if you 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 read about him in, in the Western Chronicles, uh, he's not necessarily seen as that bad, despite the things that he did. Uh, so in 1499, he leads the Spanish Inquisition to Granada, and he orders that Muslims either convert to Catholicism or leave. Uh, now, this was against the Treaty of Granada, uh, so there was going to be a, a rebellion there. Now, we should say this was not just like a complete reversal. It wasn't like they had total freedom, and then this guy shows up in 1499 and switches gears. Uh, what was happening was the Catholic bishops in the area were, were trying to convert the population. Uh, they were you know, actively preaching and going out trying to teach the, uh, the Bible in Arabic and so forth. So there was a lot of pressure on Muslims to convert, but they were trying to do it in this sort of um, gradual way and as infamous as the Inquisition becomes I mean it actually started out as what it's supposed to sound like it was actually uh, you know, a group of monks who would go around and debate with people I mean they, they were trying to actually convince people heretics that they were wrong well they didn't convince that many, and they got frustrated, and suddenly it turns into, we're going to convince you by putting you on the rack and stretching you to death, and worse stuff. Uh, so, But anyway, uh, Cisneros shows up, and he, he decides, this is just too slow, man. We're not going to play this. Uh, so he gives a, a decree, much like they did to the Jews, you either convert to Christianity or else, um, except... There are a lot more Muslims, and they're concentrated in an area. And it, you know, it was only a couple of years ago they had independence, so they're not going to take this lying down. So there is a rebellion. The rebellion is quickly squashed because they don't really have much power. Um, but this becomes the justification for basically trashing the Granada Treaty. Anyway, see, we can't. We can't give these people religious freedom. They're attacking us. Well, I mean, they're attacking us because you forced them to convert, but I mean, this is sort of a detail that gets left out. And so with that comes all the stuff that we associate with the Spanish Inquisition, uh, not the Monty Python skit with the comfy chair, but the other stuff. Okay, so um, imprisonment, torture, uh, all that stuff. Forced conversion under torture. And within a year, within a year, Cisneros can claim that all the Muslims had been converted. Well, I mean, yes, they had been converted uh, via torture. Um, but that, that's what he says. And all the mosques were converted into churches. But there's still going to be rebellions. And so this is going to start a vicious cycle. Uh, so there'll be rebellions against the forced conversions, and then those rebellions are used to justify... Uh, more pressure, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, in 1502, we are now just 10 years after the fall of Granada, Isabella declares Islam illegal. And in, in Castile, she declares it in, illegal in Castile. Uh, now, although we always think of them together, although it's always Ferdinand and Isabella, they, they weren't... Actually, um, the same king. They were the kingdoms were joined, but they weren't the same thing. So Ferdinand he did not ban Islam in Aragon at the same time. 
uh, it, it continued to be allowed there. In fact, it used to be part of the coronation oath for the kings of Aragon. Uh, one of the things they had to swear was to promise to protect the religion of the Muslims. But by now, this was becoming a burden. So Ferdinand does not um, outlaw Islam. Isabel does, and of course she's by far the more powerful one with the bigger kingdom. Uh, but by the year 1525, um, Ferdinand is no longer around, but Charles I is now the king of Aragon. Uh, he issues a decree requiring all Muslims to convert or else. So this was pretty much the end. Uh, so from a period of time from 1492 to 1525, I mean, Islam is uh, wiped out, it's declared illegal, it, uh, forced conversions, the whole thing. Now, it, it wasn't really great before that. I mean, that was the final uh, nail, really, in the coffin. They've been having intense pressure right from the, right from the beginning. Okay, however, Cisneros is not done. He didn't want to stop with Spain. He convinced Ferdinand to launch an invasion of the city of Oran in what is now Algeria. And they took it. They successfully captured the city, and they took a lot of loot. Well, Cisneros wanted to continue the drive through Africa, but Ferdinand was not interested. I mean, they made a lot of profits. He didn't want to keep fighting to conquer um, the rest of North Africa. And meanwhile, of course, Columbus had been to North America, and he returned in 1493, telling of incredible wealth there, um, and, of course, the indigenous populations of America were not nearly as well armed and ready to fight as Muslim North Africa would be. And so Spanish colonization of the Americas begins in 1493, the year after Columbus landed. Now, this, of course, is going to be a tragedy on an epic scale. Uh, it's arguably the worst or one of the worst history has seen of one people on another people, but the fact is it probably saved North Africa and the Middle East for a few centuries because this this juggernaut, this power of a uh, wave of crusading zeal, which Cisneros definitely wanted to aim into North Africa and, and keep going, um, similar to the way the Umayyads swept across the Middle East, across North Africa, into Spain, into southern France, and eventually were stopped. Well, he wants to keep going the other way. For a number of reasons, as we've seen here, that's not where it goes. The wave ends up going to the Americas. Gold and silver have a lot to deal with that, uh, but it probably prevents a, a conquest of the Middle East for several centuries. to the Muslims who were left in Spain, or were forcibly converted, as they all would be. So by the 1520s, there are officially no Muslims in Spain. Uh, they've all been converted. Uh, but that's not the end of the story. So those people who were converted become known as Moriscos. 
Um, so even when they were technically converted, they were always marked off as separate. And of course they were dealt with with uh, suspicion and they were never quite accepted. So it's kind of a raw deal. Right? You get forced to convert to another religion you don't want to convert to. And then even when you do, they're not quite happy with you. You know, we don't really trust that you're really one of us. You're not a, you're not a quote, Christian, you're a Morisco. Um, and this was particularly a problem for Islam. Uh, because as we've said, Islam relies so much on communal activities, performing rituals and following laws. It's very much a communal thing. And remember, going back to the, the very beginnings, to the early episodes of this program, uh, Islam really begins from, you know, day, well, not from day one, but officially from day one as a state. It is a community with its own leadership, its own laws, uh, and everything is done as a Muslim community. And the reason I say from day one, uh, if you're familiar with the calendar, you know that the Muslim calendar starts, year, year zero starts with the foundation of the first Muslim community, the first constitution, Muslim constitution in the city of Medina. That's when history begins, is when we have our first community. And that community gets bigger and bigger. It becomes an empire, um, and you know, different people take over the empire. That empire gets divided into different empires. But this idea of a Muslim community with its own laws, uh, bringing about the, the rule of God on earth, this continues uh, really... Um, for ab about eight centuries. Well, what happens now when we have what is an unusual situation for the time? It's not going to become an unusual situation um, for long. But now we have Muslims living under foreign rule. Okay, and they're not just living in, in a non-Muslim country. You, you had that with the Mongols for a little while, but the Mongols, as we saw, they, they really didn't care uh, about religion. You could worship whatever you want. I mean, they were a little bit crazy about a lot of things. They would kill you for the sake of killing you. But one thing they were surprisingly open to was was religion. Now we've got a different situation. You are living under what is arguably one of the most oppressive religious regimes in history. The, the Spanish Inquisition, does it, is, is there a more clear byword than that? Okay, so it wasn't like this is going to be easy to hide. So what do they do? Well, what develops becomes known as crypto-Islam. Now, of course, that's a modern term for it. They didn't call it that. Um, but it, it's basically sort of a, an Islam in hiding in 1504, and remember, we're, we're, we're talking here uh, only 12 years after the fall of Granada, in um, five years after um, the Cisneros and the Inquisition show up, uh, the Qadi of Oran, which again is the city in, in Algeria before he gets briefly conquered, he issues a fatwa, which has become known conveniently enough, as the Oran Fatwa. And it has had an impact um, 
much larger than the context of Spain. So, if you're not familiar, a fatwa is a is a Muslim legal opinion. Now, fatwas in Islam are always written in a particular way. They're always written as a question and answer. Uh, it's a response to a question. And you, you can find these all over the internet uh, today. Someone will ask a question. Is it, you know, is it legal to do online banking? Is it legal for, um, you know, whatever, to charge interest and so forth? And someone will give uh, an answer to that. And so this is the way it, it works. Now, in reality, there, there may not actually be one person asking a question, you know, like an advice column in a newspaper. Uh, what it may be is a question that is formed to deal with a, a big situation. Uh, so here the question was, can Muslims remain in Spain given the current situation? Now, it's unlikely that one person actually sent this to... Uh, the Qadi of Oran, right? If, I mean, if he had the potential to get out, if he had the capability to leave, he's not saying, well, what do you think? Is it okay for me to stay or not? I think if you had the, the opportunity to get out, uh, you would. Uh, they weren't allowed to leave, by the way. Um, even though there were all these harsh laws, they, they weren't allowed to emigrate. So that's probably not the context that this came about. What it is, is that someone is addressing what are the new rules going to be for this oppressive regime? Yes, you can stay in Spain, but here's what you have to do. So anyway, that's a that's a long, a long way of explaining how this comes about. Someone has looked at the situation of okay, these people surrendered. They were originally guaranteed rights. That didn't last long. Now they don't have those rights. What are they supposed to do? Um, you know, do they do they become martyrs and, you know, go to their graves refusing to deny their religious beliefs or what? Well, this situation may sound unusual, particularly if you're coming from a Christian or a Jewish background. Right? Because like in Sunday school, I mean, we had to learn all about how the original Christians were an underground movement and they were persecuted and they couldn't openly practice their faith and then I mean at times they were all stories about Christians being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum and of course the Jews spend much of their history in captivity uh, but remember the history of Islam as we've described it over these 60 episodes or so this is something that is unusual they have gone from having a small community in Medina which gets bigger and becomes an empire. But, and you've heard me say that so many times, you're sick of it. Okay, but now we have an unusual situation. What do you do when you're living under an oppressive state where it is illegal to be your religion? Right, I mean, this is the way the, the first disciples in the New Testament, this is how they lived. Okay, so it marks a really big change. Um, well... The Oran Fatwa is going to deal with this by basically allowing these hidden Muslims, because remember, they've, they've been forced to con convert. I mean, if, if the only kind of open Muslim you can be in Spain at this time is a dead one. But, I mean, there, there's forced conversion. Somebody comes into town and you all have to raise your hand and be baptized. Okay, 
what do you actually do in, in private. So the Oran Fetwa allows uh, Muslims, hidden Muslims, to adhere to the Christian rules, engage in Christian rituals, and even do things that are haram, like eating forbidden foods. Right? I mean, uh, Spanish are some of the, the largest uh, pork farmers in, in the world. This is what Cortes, before he went and conquered uh, much of the New World and killed lots of Native Americans. He, he was a pork farmer, right? He herded swine. Okay, and it's not just cultural presence, you know, it's not just that Cardinal Cisneros is, you know, offering you over for a pork barbecue because he's a nice guy. It's this is a test. Okay, you say you've converted to Christianity. Well, let's see. Here's some pork chops and, and so forth. They're going to push you, they're going to see. Um, push you to the limit. So the way the fatwa deals with this is it says that the important thing is the intent or the niya rather than the action. So uh, and, we, and we know what life was like for these people because a, a number of them escaped and many of them wrote books about their experiences. Uh, one of the f uh, most famous is called The Young Man of Aravalo. Of course, he's keeping his identity secret. He's not going to tell us who the young man of the of Aravello is. That's about as specific as he wants to get. But he describes what it was like to be a Morisco. Uh, and so he says they would actually use Christian worship as a substitute. So imagine that right, you're being forced into church. You're being forced to recite these prayers to, to Jesus and the Virgin Mary and uh, so forth. And so you do that with your mouth, but in your mind, you are practicing Muslim worship. So you may be saying, Hail Mary, full of grace, but you're saying in, in your mind, okay, um, definitely not worshiping Mary. Okay. And so he actually at one point says they, they were hiding their money to fund a pilgrimage to Mecca. But we don't know if they ever went, and most likely they didn't, because Moriscos were not allowed to leave the country. Uh, and you would think if they made a pilgrimage to Mecca, it would be one way. Uh, so, by the way, if, if you listen to this entire concept, what I'm talking about, this sort of secretive Islam in your heart, it may sound familiar. It's something uh, similar to something that is practiced in Shia Islam called taqiyya. Uh, taqiyya, I mean, that, that word means a number of different things, but in, in Shiism, what it refers to as uh, one being permitted to conceal one's true religion if their life is in danger. Now, this usually meant Shiites living in Sunni areas. So they were allowed to conceal it. And this is one reason why there are many historical figures. We don't know if they were Shia or not. Uh, it's speculated that they may have been Shiite, and, and we don't know. Well, how can you not know? Well, because they weren't allowed to uh, openly practice it, so they didn't. But we speculate that they were probably Shia um, practicing taqiyya. Well, what is described in the Oran Fetwa for the, these are Sunnis living in Spain is very similar, or I should say, to me, it sounds very similar. I, I once mentioned to a Sunni person that I know, 
um, I, I mentioned Takiyah to him, and he got very upset. He said this was a Shia thing, you know, another blasphemy of these Shiites. Uh, Sunnis would never do something like this. This just shows you how bad they were. And I said, well, you know, well, well look at what's, what's happening in Spain. Isn't it very similar? Uh, and, and no, no, he's quite upset. This is nothing like the same thing. Okay, I don't know. It sounds, sounds similar to me, but uh, again, these, these points are... Um, you know, very sensitive. Anyway, why are we talking about something that happened, um, you know, almost, well, over 600 years ago? It's because this is going to become a familiar model. Uh, as I said, this is a unique situation, or at least it's a very unusual situation uh, where we have a Muslim population living under very hostile non-Muslim rule. And so we, we have to make up different rules for them. Now, of course, Muslims traveled all over, uh, but generally they had the status and they could go to places where they could, um, you know, have their freedom. So, of course, Ibn Battuta travels to a lot of non-Muslim countries. He goes to Constantinople. Uh, he goes to China. Uh, but he, he went to those places because it was okay to travel to them. And, I mean, he was, was treated with the appropriate respect. This is a different situation. Okay. Now, today, more Muslims in the world live under non-Muslim rule than not. And so these sort of models, which were developed back then, uh, become very important for the situations uh, even today. Of course, today some situations are very different. Uh, in, in today, much of the persecution of Muslims is not official, but it's from mobs. I mean, India is a, is a perfect example of this. Uh, but we can also look at some place like Burma, uh, where the, you know, there is this active persecution by the army or in the government, which are now, again, the same thing. Okay, so uh, in those situations, Spain, after 1492, becomes a model of, of what you can do. Now, uh, if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that these uh, things are a model, uh, go, go on the internet and, and search um, for these things. Search for Granada and the Alhambra Decree. Uh, what comes up is not talking about the 15th century. It's mostly talking about today. Um, so the connection there is very much alive. Okay, well this may sound pretty oppressive and pretty depressing, but apparently even this was not enough. In 1609, so now we're about 100 years after the fall of Granada, even the supposedly converted Muslims are expelled from Spain. The Moriscos are expelled. Okay, you converted, but, you know, that's not, that not good enough. Now, of course, these are not people who were alive. None of them were actually alive as practicing Muslims uh, back then. So these were, we're talking second, third, or, or more generation of supposedly Christians, uh, and they are expelled uh, from Spain. This is over a hundred years after it happened to the Jews, but it happens uh, eventually. And you can read something even like Don Quixote, which is written after this time. And uh, I mean, the way he describes these uh, moriscos, these sub supposedly uh, converted 
Muslims, I mean, is, is very negative. Well, all of this, of course, is, is very sad, but it marks the end of a story that began in 711, uh, and it, the end of another golden age, a mini golden age of Islam in Al-Andalus. And that will end our episode for this time and for discussing the Reconquista, the fall of Islam in Spain. Uh, we thank you very much for your kind attention and we hope to see you again soon in the future. Thank you so much. Shukran Jazilan. Wa Masalama. Thank you.